0: Testing, are we ready to go? I didn't know if this other mic was fully off, but I think it is. It's hard to tell sometimes. Well, we've come to the main message portion of our service for today, so let's start with prayer. Lord, thank you for teaching us. Uh, We rely on your word for our truth. And we know that uh, Jesus is truth and your word is truth and wisdom comes through studying your word. So as we do that today, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit do his work of opening our minds and hearts to take in the lessons that we can learn today and just apply them to our lives. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, we're kind of going through a, a somewhat of a study through the book of Acts and learning about the early New Testament church and we're gonna continue on today in Acts chapter eight And we're going to learn about a man named Philip. And again, I don't think I ever gave a sermon on on this man, but we'll we'll do that today. Uh, In previous sermons, we learned in chapter 6 about how there was a need in the church. So God told church leaders to ordain seven Grecian Jews to serve the Grecian Jewish widows that were being uh, left out, so to speak, and uh, they ordained seven men. Last time we learned about one of them, Stephen, who spoke boldly the gospel uh, to the Jews in Jerusalem there to the point that he was stoned to death. He was the church's first martyr and uh, just an outstanding example of a man filled with the Holy Spirit and who had the courage to speak what needed to be spoken. Now we're going to read about another of those seven men. Uh, In this case, Philip is is the one. And uh, we read in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, on the day that Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the gospel, on the day that he was martyred, starting on that day, it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, now don't forget, he is the man who in the next chapter becomes Paul, the great apostle. But at this point in time, he is a Pharisee by the name of Saul. And he seems to be leading the persecution against the the early church it says Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house he dragged off men and women and put them in prison so it wasn't just men but it was women believers too so can you imagine living at that time and living in fear that somebody is going to show up at your house because they're going from house to house to find Christians And for no other cause than being a Christian, you're being dragged off and put in prison for your beliefs. Now, none of us wants persecution, do we? In fact, we pray often that God give us the freedom that we need to worship Him in the way that we want. But you know what? Persecution hits the church and hits us as individuals from time to time. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you and through persecution, God's purpose is being worked out. Because what happens here? Everybody else, aside from the apostles, has to leave Jerusalem for safety's sake, and they go out to surrounding parts of the country. And by this happening, the gospel is actually being spread, because these Christians are going out from Jerusalem, as Jesus prophesied, and they're taking the gospel message to others who have not heard it. So don't be afraid of persecution. Persecution is uncomfortable. But through persecution, good things can happen. Yeah, bad things can happen too. Nobody wants to be put in jail or maybe beaten you know, for your, uh, your beliefs. But persecution is used by God for good purposes. You know, sometimes I look at our country today, and we see the church, in some ways, kind of stagnant, so to speak. And we're all, you know, as Christians, kind of fat and sassy, and, you know, we enjoy our freedom here, certainly in this country. But even with the freedoms that we have, Christians slack off, Uh, you know, church isn't important to them anymore. God isn't important to them anymore. But you know, when you're under persecution, all of a sudden you find yourself drawn closer to God, don't you? Because bad things are happening in my life, even in your personal life, when maybe somebody at work is getting on your case because you're a Christian and they don't like Christians, or they feel uncomfortable being around you. It draws us closer to God in prayer. We ask God, help us in this situation. Intervene, please. Because it's very uncomfortable for me, and I'm getting hurt. So you see, persecution can have a good purpose, and it can draw us closer to God. And in the case of church growth, maybe in this country, who knows what's ahead for us as Christians. Maybe there is going to be more persecution on the church as a whole. Don't be afraid. God can use that for very good purposes. So think about that. But in this case here, Saul is leading intense persecution against the church. And uh, just hold your place there and turn back to Acts 1, verse 6. Remember what Jesus said, Acts 1, verse 6. He was about to ascend back into heaven after his death and resurrection. The apostles were asking him, well, Lord, what about the kingdom? You're leaving. I thought you were going to set up the kingdom now. Uh, Tell us when it's going to happen. Acts 1 verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, which it would on Pentecost, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem to start and in all Judea and then Samaria and then eventually to all the ends of the earth. That's the way the gospel is going to proceed. So sure enough, here are church members under persecution, leaving Jerusalem for their own safety, and they're going to the areas that Jesus prophesied the gospel would go to. So what did it take for the gospel to spread like that? It took persecution. The church members weren't of their own volition going to just one day decide to leave Jerusalem and go out into the countryside and travel distances. It was because of persecution that it became necessary And God used the persecution for His purpose of spreading the gospel. So now here we read in verse 4 about this one man that had been ordained uh, as a servant to the widows, but he takes the lead here. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip, one of the seven, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy with that city. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Samaria, because uh, we have read before that the Jews did not like Samaritans. The Jews hated Samaritans. Let me talk to you a little bit about why that was. Hopefully, I'm not going to set off anything here. But uh, to show you just a, a silly map of Israel, this here is the Mediterranean Sea, if you didn't notice. But this basically, when God's people came out of Egypt and out of slavery, they traveled across the wilderness. It was supposed to be a short trip to the promised land, but because of their rebellion in the wilderness, it turned out to be 40 years. But eventually, Israel settled in the promised land and each of the 12 tribes had its own location in the promised land. They were scattered throughout the land, Jerusalem being approximately down here, if you will. Uh, The bad thing about the tribes of Israel is that they didn't get along, unfortunately. Don't forget, it was 12 sons of Jacob, whose name later became Israel. So 12 tribes of Israel under the 12 sons. The problem about the tribes of Israel is that uh, they didn't get along because those 12 sons of Jacob had four different mothers. That was one of the main reasons why they didn't get along. You know, Jacob married, was gonna marry Rachel, but first of all, he had to marry Leah in order to marry Rachel. And both uh, Rachel and Leah, his two wives, had handmaids. So through those four women, Jacob had 12 sons. And you know, when there's a mixture like that, people don't always get along very well. But it turned out to be this way with Israel, so that in the year, approximately the year 1000, Israel became divided. You had the northern kingdom of Israel... And you had the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel and Judah. We have an emergency back there. Uh, Mike Fedorchik, you want to go back and help out, if you would? Okay. Let's pray right now for our friend Jim Scoofus. Lord, we don't know uh, what Jim is encountering right now, but he looks like he's feeling faint. We may have to call the paramedics and uh, we just pray for your strength for him now Lord as we speak help him strengthen him in whatever way he needs help just uh, help him physically and uh, mentally right now and we'll seek help if we need to right now Lord thank you in Jesus name but as I was saying uh, the kingdom split into two Israel and Judah Jerusalem is down here as part of Judah and what uh, Philip does is he travels into the northern kingdom. Now, it was no longer Israel anymore because Israel was taken into captivity when uh, Israel was invaded by the Assyrians in about 718. And all of these inhabitants, these northern tribes, were taken into captivity and never came back. So this land became known as Samaria. And these people were hated because they were foreigners. When uh, Israel was taken into captivity, the land was filled with foreigners. So the Jews hated the Israelites. And uh, that's where Philip went to preach the gospel. And uh, he was going to encounter, uh, that's the word I'm looking for now, opposition. There was hatred, the Jews hated the Samaritans, but that's where Philip went to preach the gospel. He preached the word wherever he went. And of course, this land at this time was under the control of Satan. So you have people filled with evil spirits, uh, you have a lot of people sick, and uh, as he preached the gospel there, great joy came to the city, because for the first time they saw light in the midst of darkness. Now, the city of Samaria was under control of a bad man, Simon the sorcerer. We read about this now in verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. Now, if you look up some other sources, it talks about uh, him being uh, a magician, a man who communicated with the dead, uh, an exorcist. He had a woman with him by the name of Helena. Uh, Simon set him up himself up as the deity to be worshipped. Uh, so let's read what the Bible has to say about this man. Simon Magus... And magus is the word from which we get our word, magician. So he involved himself in, in sorcery and magic. It says, he boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But then they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw." So the city was pretty much under control of this man, Simon, but when he heard Philip preach and saw the miracles that he did, he became enamored with him and wanted to kind of get on board with the church. So it seems that he was baptized, but it didn't seem to be a true baptism. He didn't really seem to be humbled by God and a true follower of Jesus Christ. So verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, normally speaking, when somebody's baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit. But in this case, there was a delay. I wonder why. Philip was a converted man. He had the ability to preach the gospel and baptize people. But when he was baptizing the people of Samaria, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. They were just baptized. And it wasn't until Peter and John, other apostles, came from Jerusalem and placed their hands on them that they finally received the Holy Spirit. Well, were they second class citizens in Samaria? No. But God wanted the approval of the headquarters church in Jerusalem to come and to actually lay hands on these people because. You know, if Peter and John had not come and done this, the Samaritans might have considered themselves to be second-class Christians. That, well, uh, we were just baptized by Philip, who's not even one of the original apostles. So I think God went out of his way to have the original Jerusalem authority, the, two of the original 12 apostles come and lay hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit, so that they would never feel like second-class Christians. Does it make any difference as to who baptizes you to be a Christian? No, it actually doesn't. But at this point in time, since the Samaritans were first being called to salvation, I think God went out of his way to make sure that the right authority from Jerusalem came, accepted the fact that Samaritans are being called to salvation, and laid hands on them. We don't, you know, you probably remember who baptized you. I do. But you know what? Sometimes with human nature, we make a big deal if an important leader in the church baptized us. You know, one of the churches that I served in years ago, I had a co pastor or uh, an elder working with me, and he always let it be known that he was baptized by Herbert Armstrong himself. And he kind of wore that like a badge of honor. In a sense, not even, not saying it, but the meaning was coming across that his baptism was better than everybody else's. Because he was baptized by the president of the church at the time. And that's why, you know, when Jesus was traveling with the apostles, it points out that Jesus never baptized anybody. He preached the gospel, but he let the apostles do the baptizing. Why? I think because Jesus, knowing human nature, would know that those that he personally baptized would kind of wear that as a badge of honor and in a sense make them feel better than anybody else as a Christian. But I think God saw the need just to encourage the Samaritans so that they would know that their baptism wasn't second class god had peter and john come from jerusalem travel there and you know lay the hands on the people that were baptized so so that the samaritans would know that they have the approval of the 12 apostles it's human nature and i think god's response to human nature that's why that happened that way but certainly when peter and john placed their hands on them they received the holy spirit Now, verse 18, here's this Simon Magus again. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So he wanted power. He wanted to be able to wow people. You know, he wanted authority from the apostles to be able to do this as well. Now, Peter saw through this. Peter saw that his attitude was not right. That, listen, to be baptized, you've got to be humble. We're looking to Jesus Christ. You don't want to be baptized so that you can get the Holy Spirit, so that you could perform miracles, and you can lay hands on people that that, that they get the Holy Spirit. Now, there's nothing wrong with people receiving the Holy Spirit, but he was all about power. He had wowed the people of Samaria for so many years. They looked to him. They admired him. They worshipped him. And he wanted more of this power. So Peter saw his bad attitude, and Peter answered, May your money perish with you. There's one translation of the Bible that translates it, May you and your money go to hell. <laughs> May your money perish with you, because you're, you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. So, you know, don't come to me and say, here's $100, Pastor John, I want to be baptized. (laughs) We don't accept money for baptizing people. But his thinking was so screwed up that he looked at everything in his life as something you can purchase. And he wanted power, he wanted people to admire him. He says, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. So to this day, if somebody attempts to purchase a church office, or to sell a church office, that's called simony, simony, and it's named after Simon Magus, this man who tried to do this, and you think, do people do that today? Does anybody try to purchase a church office? Well, if you look through the history of the papacy in the Catholic Church, a lot of popes bought their way into office and a lot of popes sold indulgences to people. You want to have your sins forgiven? Come up with the cash, and your sins will be forgiven. (laughs) And that's why there was a Protestant Reformation, because that was becoming so rampant throughout the church that things had to be done. Martin Luther saw the changes had to be made. So he says in verse 22 to Simon, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages." So we move on now in verse 26, another individual. So what lessons have we learned? We've learned about persecution. And that persecution can be a good thing. Even though it's not enjoyable, God can use it for positive purposes. Uh, we also learned about uh, Simon Magus, a man who had satanic connections. And you know, we can learn from this too that this is something we need to avoid as, as Christians. We should never take it for granted to a man or other influences that are satanic. Uh, We can't treat them lightly, so we have to be on guard because Satan is out to affect us in any way he possibly can. Satan was involved with the man Simon Magus, had his mind all confused, his motives were all confused, and uh, he had people worshiping him and probably worshiping Satan through him. You know, Billy Graham warned the church about avoiding any connections uh, with anything satanic or questionable, let's put it this way. I uh, printed up this thing here, just a real short article on something Billy Graham said. Evangelist Billy Graham has cautioned Christians against buying objects that claim to possess possess spiritual healing powers as such items, no matter how innocent they seem, are demonic and opposed to God. The 99-year-old founder of the uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association was answering somebody's uh, question. Uh, The the person said, I have bad arthritis, and I saw an ad in one of those supermarket papers for a gold-plated charm that they say will heal me. The ad says it's been prayed over by a spiritual healer and has special magical healing power. Should I send for it? Billy Graham said, nothing like this has any medical evidence to support its dubious claims, nor should you trust what the sellers say about it. The evangelist noted that the Bible tells us to avoid any object that claims to have magical powers or is connected with someone who claims to have magical powers. Billy Graham said, at best, such things will only make us poor. At worst, they may bring us into contact with spiritual powers that are not from God but are demonic and opposed to God. He warned when the magicians in Ephesus turned to Christ, they immediately repented of their magical practices and destroyed their magical charms. Instead of turning to objects that falsely claim to grant spiritual healing, Graham encouraged the reader to put their hope in God, who promises that in heaven, all pain and suffering will be erased. He said, why not turn to him for the help you need? When we commit our lives to Christ, we know God is with us, even when we experience pain or disability. No, I can't promise he will take all your pain away, but I can promise he will be with you to encourage and guide you to proper medical health. According to a recent Gallup survey on paranormal beliefs, over half of Americans believe in psychic or spiritual healing or the power of the human mind to heal the body. A separate poll from the Associated Press found that 19% of Americans believe in spells or witchcraft. You know, uh, in Africa, we were looking at some videos, the pastors, and and one of the pastors who frequently travels to Africa uh, a new, very young child was wearing like bracelets and necklaces. And I said, well, that's kind of odd for a, a child that young to be wearing jewelry. He says, it's not jewelry. He says, everybody in Africa wears amulets to keep evil away, to keep spells away and witchcraft away. And it's just very normal in that culture. From the time a baby is born to the, to the day that an old person dies, they wear bracelets. And, and he had a name for it. It was kind of a silly name, like hookah or something like that. But it's just part of the culture that everybody wears charms to keep you know, people from casting spells on you or anything like that. And that's becoming more prominent in America now. It says, Graham has frequently discussed the dangers of dabbling in witchcraft and occult practices, which he says are directly opposed to God and his will for our lives. The main reason for God's opposition to occult practices, he previously explained, are because they have their origin and spiritual forces that do not come from God, but from the devil. Just as the devil is absolutely opposed to God and his people, so too are his demons. So think about your life. You know, as witchcraft is growing in popularity, don't ever dabble in that kind of stuff. Everything from horoscopes to uh, Ouija boards, uh, and we need to be very careful about the media that we watch. There are so many movies about demonic possession and satanic beliefs and witchcraft and that sort of thing. Just be careful of what you're watching. Those things are not of God, and we need to guard our minds and our hearts from Satan's influence, which is rampant in this world today. That's why when uh, Philip was entering into Samaria, uh, it was not a godly land in any respect. The land was filled with demons and demonic influences. And he had to be very careful the way he went through that that, uh, land. And individuals like Simon Magus that he came in contact with, he needed God's help uh, to avoid any trouble so, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like you, I'm going to cast a spell on you, or something like that. You know what I think of immediately, the scripture that says, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. So I don't have to worry about any of that happening to me. I'm in God's hands. I'm his child. He knows me, and he's protecting me all the time. Amen. So this final section here about Philip and the Ethiopian, now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, "'Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza.'" So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Well, for those of you who don't know what, what, what a eunuch is, it's a man who's been castrated. He had his uh, reproductive organs cut off, ouch, because <laughs> he served in an important uh, role, usually in government. Uh, they need a man to guard uh, a queen, and they want to make sure that nothing sexual ever happens and that there's no temptation for that ever happening. So that's what happens to him, and he becomes a eunuch. Or sometimes they put male guards over the female harem. They want to make sure that nothing ever happens. There's no uh, temptation along those lines. So that person agrees to become a eunuch for the position that he's going to hold and and what he's going to do. So... uh, This man was an important official in Ethiopia, so we're talking here about, you know, Africa, an African. On his way, he met an Ethiopian, a eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem, so he was a Jewish man from Africa. He had become a convert to Judaism. He was on his way back from Jerusalem. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his his way home, he was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So notice the previous planning that God did for this to happen. And this is another lesson I want you to learn from this chapter. Uh, God works behind the scenes. He worked behind the scenes in Philip's life. He sent him to a place where this meeting was going to happen. God knew in advance that it was going to happen, and he prepared Philip and sent him to carry out this preaching of the gospel. The same thing happens in our lives today. God makes connections. Uh, We heard the story of Irene Messer, who fell down in her driveway, and she was too weak to get up. A neighbor just happened to look out and see her laying in the driveway. And he put it in the heart of the neighbor to rush over there and to provide whatever help he could, called paramedics or whatever the case may be. That wasn't just an accident. God was aware of what was going to happen in advance, and he provided that help be there to help his child in her time of need. The same thing happens to all of us. My wife and I can tell you of experiences of times where we've broken down on the road and somebody just happens to come along. One story that really blew me away, talking to a a fellow pastor years ago who was driving through the desert part of the Southwest, and uh, he had some car like a a Plymouth Duster or something like that, and they blew a radiator hose, okay, in the middle of the desert. So there they were stranded, and of course they prayed and prayed, and here comes this old beaten up pickup truck along the road, and the guy pulls over gets out, says, uh, what's the the problem? They explain to him, you know, our car. And, of course, it takes a particular part, a particular type of radiator hose, and uh, they said, well, can you help us? You know, uh, And the guy says, wait a minute. He walks to the back of his old beaten-up pickup truck. He says, I think I got just what you need. And he pulls out the exact radiator hose for that particular car, a Dodge Duster, older Dodge Duster, And he comes out, and he says, I think this will help you. And he puts the thing on the car. He happens to have some water or antifreeze in the back of his truck, fills up the radiator, and sends them on their way. Was that just an accident? Or did God know in advance that this was going to happen, and he prepared either an individual or an angel, whatever this man was, to come along with the exact help that they needed? To send them back on their way and to rescue them for all intents and purposes. God works behind the scenes. He's constantly aware of our comings and goings. And when it comes to preaching of the gospel, sometimes you think it's just happenstance or just coincidence that you run into this person and you're able to share something about the gospel with them. Don't doubt it. It's not happenstance, God's working behind the scenes. So this man is reading a a scroll here. Notice he's uh, reading from Isaiah the prophet. He's reading uh, chapter 53, verses 32 through 35. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. Quoting Isaiah, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So who is Isaiah speaking about? Jesus, thank you. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look. So obviously Philip mentioned to him about baptism. Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. So God had another job for Philip in another part of of the land. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So that's why it's important, (laughs) you know, when you wake up every morning, you say to God, Lord, whatever you have planned for me today, help me to be ready. Is it a person that I'm going to bump into? Is it a need in someone else's life that I'm going to be able to fulfill? Uh, Point it out to me. Make me aware of it. Okay? And God will use you in whatever way he sees fit. So we need to know about the gospel too, don't we? Somebody asks us a question. This Jesus, what what is that all about? What are you going to say? You don't have to know every scripture and, and be a theologian. But you have to study God's Word, you have to grow in your relationship with Him so you can share in whatever way to help another person. And to the point that you're prepared, God perhaps sees more fit to use you because He knows you're ready. So in this chapter of Philip and the Samaritans, we learn several lessons. We learn about avoiding Satan and any worldly influence of Satan. We learn about uh, persecution can be a good thing. We certainly don't want it to happen, but we know that if it does happen, God can use it in in a positive way. And we've learned how God works behind the scenes, too, not just in Philip's life, but in our lives on a daily basis. And he wants to use us in whatever way he can to promote the gospel. I think he's going to use us at this activity coming up on the 24th to make the people of Canfield aware of a great need on the other side of the world and to open their eyes to how we can help. So I hope you'll want to participate in that. And we'll pray that God bless that activity and all of us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word today about this man's life, Philip, and all of the great things that you did through him to your glory. and Father, help us to learn these lessons and to remember them. And we pray, Father, that we can be used by you, that we're prepared, and you're going to make those connections for the people we come in contact with and the causes we participate in uh, to help others, because that's what you've called us to do. Good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. Help us to be willing servants uh, for you, Lord. Help us to be prepared so that we can be used in whatever way we can to your glory. So we thank you, Lord, and pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.